Hi. <laughs> so, hi everyone, this is Lahiru and I'm here with Kaz and we're doing some more interview techniques. So what we're going to go through today is clinical questions and lateral thinking questions. So that's what we're going to go through. Thanks for joining us and we'll get started very soon. So yeah, so what we're going to go through, Kaz, is some clinical questions and lateral thinking questions. You excited? Very, very excited. So clinical questions tend to get asked, um, you know, of, with a varying frequency, but they are becoming more and more um, uh, frequent. So La, what, what, what's your approach with these ones? Yeah, so I think the first thing to know is that when you get asked a clinical question, you're a, you're a resident, right? So you're maybe a HMO two, three or four, if you're going for quick care jobs, maybe it's senior for other jobs. And what I find is that I don't think the examiners can really expect too much like a consultant level answer. So what we did when we constructed our clinical question, or pretty much this is what I what I did, I just constructed a question that could be interpreted in a very complex way. Um, so you know, it was a, it was a question of someone, uh, you know, having a motor, motor, sorry, having a bicycle accident, and they've fallen, broken their wrist, and so they're in quite excruciating pain, even after a normal trauma assessment. So we made it kind of simple in that the trauma, the rest of the trauma survey is normal, but you've got this really severe ten out of ten pain in their wrist. Now that has so much complexity in pain management, uh, and so you know, you could ask a pain physician or a you know senior anaesthetist who's interested in pain management and get a really comprehensive answer. But essentially what I wanted to see from junior staff is that they had a framework. So clinical questions, this is all about frameworks. If just like we've said before, give me the list before the detail, clinical questions are the same. I want to know that you have a really good structure because then as you learn things in the future, you will not miss anything. You'll have a, a really great framework and skeleton to add on a whole bunch of knowledge to. So in this particular question, when, you know, when you, when you think about pain management, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to structure it in a way that, you know, uh, we, we can translate the structure to many different things. For, for, for example, it's usually a serious thing. So I'll say, well, I'd immediately attend to the patient. Uh, and then I'd do what I do for any sick patient or someone in severe pain or who's otherwise unwell, which is the standard deteriorating patient A to E assessment, which involves escalating, calling for help if you think it's required, uh, and then A to E assessment. Now, I, I, I wasn't too fussed with people going through the ATUE assessment because this was about pain. But as soon as they started with that, I said, oh, fantastic, that's great. I'll volunteer some information about how you know, tachycardic or hypertensive they are and if there's any other ish issues. So I, you know, I'm not, this is not really to test their deteriorating patient ALS style in, knowledge and, and frameworks, but I want to know that they'll do that first. Then the next part of that structure, so we've said would attend immediately, call for help, A2E assessment, which you do for any sick patient. And then there's the framework for the question in particular. Hmm. So then if it's pain, I do a history examination and investigation of that pain or whatever else the problem might be, whether it's fluid problem, you know, dehydration, fluid assessment, chest pain, shortness of breath. I then do my history examination investigations of that. And my management would pretty much be of the framework of I would have a you know a biopsychosocial approach, um, pharmacological and non-pharmacological. My pharmacological management is usually multimodal, which includes this, this, and this. And my non-pharmacological management in this situation would be something like immobilization, uh, contacting surgeons, scheduling a theater time for fixation or whatever they need to do. And finally, think of any other serious causes. 
Now, just to so other serious causes would be things like compartment syndrome, vascular vascular compromise, maybe even nerve entrapment or nerve issues, uh, and just to say a few of these things that I'd be concerned about. Now, just to remember, I'm a consultant anesthetist who has probably done a lot of pain management, but there's nothing in that answer that really was that advanced, which is attend the patient, call for help, A2E assessment, history exam and investigations, farm, non-farm management, and a bit of detail. And everyone knows what multimodal is. Everyone knows what non-pharmacological is, and then some serious stuff not to be missed. What, what do you think of that? Uh, I think that, I mean, you're on the program, but well done. Um, that's sort of an answer. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to give that answer back, back in the day though. But so uh, again, in my experience now, over Zoom, uh, it's really hard to gauge, uh, you know, you, for the for the candidate, for the trainee being interviewed, they're, they're not really going to know how much time that they're necessarily going to have for this question. So the only way you combat a, uh, you know, a setting where you don't really know the time frame is to show your structure and then slowly add detail. So they've already got the framework of an answer. The interviewer already knows that you're going to talk about all these really useful things and they can cut you off uh, if they need to, knowing that you're, you know, you've got a good structure. So that's really all I'm, all I'm looking for. So, so what I really like about that answer is, um, so, so I, I think the structure is really great, and I think you've you've, you've essentially just kept it really simple. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you've said you have any patient in front of you, we all automatically do an, like a doctor's ABC assessment. Like we do it cognitively by the time you're PGY three, um, and if there's any aberrations in that assessment, you would address it appropriately. Um, and it's just about I think articulating that, and, and I think that's what I remember finding really hard about clinical questions as a resident is um, what I did in real life and what I say in an exam is, is really different. And it's only when you start starting for the exam and you start actually doing clinical vivas that you start to bring the two together, that your communication about what you do in a scenario actually matches up with what you do. And you probably notice this, um, you know, teaching lots of residents law that if you put someone in a situation on how to manage hypoxia, they'll probably do it right. But if you ask them about it, they get tangled. They go, oh, well, VQ and, and this and do that. But essentially you, what, you, what, what would you do? You turn up the FIO2 and you check the circuit you know, mm-hmm. patient to, and that's the first thing you do. And I think um, where I find residents struggle a lot is they, they haven't practiced doing that. Mm. And I think clinical questions are, as with a lot of questions, but something where you can improve incrementally if you just practice it. Mm. And, and, I, and I really like to put myself in that position. So I use my imagination and I imagine I'm, I'm in front of the patient and I actually talk through what I would do. And that's so much easier than trying to think um, abstract. Um, That's such a good idea. So you don't miss things if you, you know, these are, these are just words, two people talking over a screen. But if you imagine yourself in that situation, you know, there's a lot of uh, mnemonics and memory aids that you will get just from the fact that you imagine yourself in a situation. That's, I think that's a really useful tip though. I hope most people, even in my, in the final exam that we we coach for, will hopefully do that as well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And um, again, it's all done to practice and I think doing a breadth of questions as well. So, Mm. I I mean, that was quite an interesting question. I'm very used to having lots of anesthesia, uh, um, deteriorating patient on the ward type questions, because that was Mm. kind of almost a, Mm. you know, your ED resident um, in, in ED making this assessment, which is a, which is a great scenario because um, Mm. it it expects a lot more lateral thinking than just being, Oh, I'm an anesthetist. I'm here to look after the airway and pain, um, which is a mindset we tend to get to. And I feel like, if, especially for a quick care year, it, it's, it's almost unfair to have anesthetic questions because there's varying amounts of anesthetic um, uh, experience, but right. everyone's managed a fracture or help manage a fracture in emergency. And so I guess, you know, if you were, if you were to ask me, you know, 
what what would be the questions you want to absolutely know how to answer? I think it's just the basic stuff so that you would be expected in emergency or as any medical or surgical internal resident on the wards. And these would be things like, how would you assess dehydration in this patient? How would you address uh, or assess or uh, manage um, volume loss or hypotension? How would you assess poor urine output? And literally, those are the same things. So if you think about poor urine output, I would literally just say, you know, zero mils for three hours, that sounds serious. I'd attend the patient, call for help, A2E assessment, and try to optimize any uh, hemodynamic parameters that were not great. Hmm. And in the meantime, I would think pre-renal, renal, and post-renal causes. And they're just going to a bit of detail and say a few words about each. Because realistically, renal failure is very complicated and very, you know, very tough to solve and manage. But the actual motion of doing things at, at a junior level is, is not too bad. Post-renal, bladder scan, check the catheter isn't kinked. Uh, you know, tr- renal causes, are they only in renotoxin medications? What's their pretest probability? What's their history of, ha- of or likelihood of having this diabetic, hypertensive, et cetera? Or have they just had a massive operation with lots of blood loss? And then pre-renal, uh, yeah, essentially, what is their volume status? What's their fluid balance? Um, what's their blood pressure been? Are they actually mm. able to perfuse this kidney? And if not, what am I going to do to fix that? Mm. So, you know, you don't have to get into that extra detail I, I gave, but if you said those first things and had a structure for renal failure, pre-renal, renal, and post-renal, I think I'd score you very highly. Yeah. And I think with clinical questions, the other thing to consider is, is that there's kind of two styles, um, at this level, one is the, the kind of the style that you ask, which is you give a scenario and you let the candidate work through, you know, start to the end. Um, and, and often you can integrate non-clinical aspects into it, like, um, you know, uh, M&M um, escalation to, to WebEyes and um, stuff like that. But mm. then there's another style, which is more of the Viva style, um, which I've only had once, but it's essentially you give a clinical scenario and as you're working through it, they, they cut you off and they go, no, the, well, the BP is now 80. What do you do? Or the BP is now 60. What do you do? The patient's mm. not tachycardic. This is the ECG. What rhythm is it? Wow, that that was pretty intense as a very, junior. <laughs> yeah, it, it was very intense. And I've only had that once. And I found it really hard because all the interviews, practice I've done and all the clinical scenarios I've had mm. had been the question and then let me kind of work my way to the answer. Mm. So that kind of Viva style is, again, something to prepare for, I think, because that is what a Viva is and you'll be doing it for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, so another question last. So one of the things that I, one of the structures that I really enjoy from what you teach is um, when you're trying to diagnose a deteriorating patient, you have the probability gambit and you have, oh, yeah. you know, what is the worst thing? How would you incorporate that into this question? Yeah, that's, that's good. So if uh, that, that's definitely advanced level stuff. So, but let's say, let's say you get something like hypotension in a patient. So let's give a scenario of a post-op, anterior section who now has blood pressure of 80 on the ward. Uh, and let's say every, everything else is kind of no, normal stuff, nothing nothing too out, outward on that. Uh, then what I sometimes integrate, after I've done my attend, call for help, 80, 80 assessment, my framework, and, and then talk about, I'll do a history examination investigation after stabilizing the patient. And now I'm targeting why is this patient hypertensive? I would then volunteer that this is most likely this, the serious things I want to rule out is this. And if those things aren't correct, I would then adopt a framework, which would be for me, hypertension is causes are preload, rate, rhythm, contractility, and afterload. And so what I, what I find in this is they talk about how uh, as you get more expertise in the field, people use probability gambits because they've got so much experience that most of all, you know, most likely that an elderly patient post anesthetic on the wards with hypertension is probably vasoplegia post anesthetic and being elderly 
Uh, but the serious things I really want to rule out are some kind of volume loss because it's you know it was operative. They're elderly, so they've maybe had an ischemic event, so the contractility is a problem, or maybe they've had some antibiotics and now are vasodilated due to anaphylaxis. So I'm now talking about three very typical things. I'm not talking about a pneumothorax. That doesn't seem like a thing. And I'm not talking about DVTP because that would happen days later if maybe they're not on clexane and they've got a malignancy. So I'm really using my, you know, what my clinical acumen to say that I'm really going to look at some reasonable probability stuff and some serious stuff. And then if I'm wrong about that, I've got a structure to fall back on. Mm-hmm. Um, on my in my website, so www.anesthesiacollective.com, I've got some resources. Um, and one of those is just um, a, a table, a set of tables full of all the different um, you know problems that you might get: hypertension, hypertension, hypoxemia, et cetera, et cetera. And just the tables and frameworks that I have. So I would recommend everyone make their own tables of differentials. But it's just the process of writing those out means that you'll have this structure for everything in your head. And as you get more senior and senior, you know, ten years, twenty years down the track, everything will just be so much easier because you've got a structure for everything. Yeah, and I um I, I definitely use those tables when I prepare for the interviews and just for the common stuff like hypotension, tachycardia, and hypoxia. I think those are the three, mm. the holy trinity of the <laughs> patient um, at a resident level. And I think if you can address those, and and again, you just need a reasonable answer. Um, and, and I think again, uh, you know, with these questions, if you have a if you have so let's go back to hypotension. So mm. one of the questions I I ask candidates is um you know uh, if you have post induction hypotension, mm. what would you do? Um, and you know, you do your, you go through ABCs, um, and you work your way through it, but, but also like if you have hypertension in theater, do you sit there checking the airway and making sure they're ventilating properly? No, you, you, you address the, the aberrant variable, which is the blood pressure. So you'd give some fluid and you'd give some vasopressor and then you'd work through everything. You go to airway, make sure that they're not bronchospasm and uh, bronchospasm, um, check the airway pressures and, you know, you'd work it through the list, but mm. I, th- I think, I think you need to show. Also, that I think the way you show you have experience a little bit is by showing that you get that the most likely cause yeah. of post-induction hypotension is an overzealous propofol dose or, you know, having the SIBO running up too high for too long. Mm-hmm. And I think showing that just shows that you have a bit of experience. And I think that's mm-hmm. how you would differentiate yourself from, you know, if you were a PGY3 or PGY2 um, candidate applying for a quick care job who has a bit more experience or you are uh, someone applying for the college with a really good quick care year where you've done lots of anesthetics and ICU versus someone who hasn't, that's a good way to show it, um, mm. that you have that experience. So um, I agree that you probably don't need that advanced level of thinking, but I think just showing that you know what the horse is versus the zebras. Is it the same? You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> so, so absolutely. And, and just a bit of plug. So uh, the course that I run, the ABCs of Anesthesia Bootcamp, um, I've got all the videos for free on um, on YouTube, on the YouTube channel. Um, and the particular playlist is the Anesthesia, sorry, ABCs of Anesthesia Bootcamp playlist. And the, the video there that I've got is just a framework. It's like a, you know, four, four phase framework for crisis management of any sort of problem solving. And so, if, you know, phase one, is you know doing all the initial things so checking your reading calling for help potentially asking the surgeon to stop and then scanning your monitors the patient and the surgeon so that's i call that chess c h s s so confirm reading call for help scan your patient surgery monitors maybe stop the surgery then phase two is what you're talking about the practical stuff you don't go straight to a to E in the anesthetic context, because things happen a lot quicker, you temporize measures. So phase two is temporization and for hypotension, it's really just give a bit of fluid, give a vasopressor, which most people after three months of anesthetics will be very comfortable doing. 
And then the final three, two, phase three and phase four, these are more complicated. Phase three is diagnostics and phase four is treatment. And we kind of go on through a bit of how to get through those. But yeah, if you want to see the whole video, you know, it's a, it's probably a reasonable one hour lecture uh, on that. And um, yeah, I think, it, I think it's pretty useful to go through, especially if you haven't got a structure already. Yeah, um, I highly recommend that. I think that gives a very useful um, foundation to then answer really any clinical question. Um, even if it's something you haven't really seen. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so why don't we work through one more clinical question if you want? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. How about I'll ask you one? Um, yeah, sounds and good. Then, and you can, oof, on the spot. Um, so I haven't been asked this personally, but it's kind of made its way through the, um, you know, the, the grapevine. grapevine of the interview question. So yeah, here, um, you are a critical care resident um, finishing off a uh, shift in theater and you're the last one in theater and you're walking past recovery when you notice there's an unattended patient with the Larry mask inside you, an LMA. Um, and you also notice there's some green fluid coming out of the esophageal port and the mm. patient is unattended. What would you do? Okay. So the, the most there's immediate things and then system things uh, to worry about, but right now I'm going to worry immediately about patient safety. Uh, so first of all, I might highlight the fact that, you know, this is sounds very serious for risk of aspiration in a patient with an unprotected airway. And so immediately I'd call for help, especially as a quick care resident, you don't want to be you know, maneuvering airway devices and having to re-intubate uh, without this. So first of all, call for help because you'll need everything at your disposal to sort this out. Um, once help arrived, I would then be able to manage this. So while help was arriving, I'd probably do all the things that I need to do in general uh, for, for any patient that I, that, that, that I could reasonably do as a quick care resident. So some of those things would include uh, having the patient monitored, increasing the oxygen to make sure that they're well oxygenated. So that's my safety stuff. Uh, and then finally trying to temporize things. So temporization in this set setting, I've actually, I haven't actually taught before, but the things that come to mind would be to use suction, which is at every bedside. So suctioning out around the LMA or even with a suction with the suction port, if the LMA is a pro seal or one with the extra gastric port and that might decrease any further harm for this patient and then if i had a number of hands and helpers putting the patient in the left lateral position may be something that would be useful now that's probably most of the things that i could think about doing whether you go head up or head down they both have their risks and their benefits so i wouldn't really you know be very passionate about doing either. I would do the position that I could best manage this airway, which is probably slightly head up. Um, so I can, you know, appropriately give a jaw thrust and maintain the airway because this patient's now at risk of other things occurring, which is, as I mentioned, aspiration, but also laryngospasm. And if they do laryngospasm, negative pressure pulmonary edema. Now, everything beyond that point for a crit care resident could be far more tricky. For example, you know, what, what is the cause of this patient regurgitating uh, fluid? Um, and if I need to manage it, it probably re means removing the LMA and then getting control of the airway, which probably means an endotracheal tube, which is a you know relatively senior technique and unsupervised, unsupervised as a crit care resident, it probably won't be something that you'd want to do because if you do this wrong, patient dies. Whereas right now you've got a patient who may become sick uh, with an aspiration or laryngospasm. So at this point, I would probably, as a junior, you can you can still, even though you're not allowed to embark upon these dangerous techniques, I find it really useful to tell what I would expect to do, because then I'm showing that I would get things set up for the senior help that arrives. And so what, what am I thinking? The things that I would like to get set up is everything for reintubation. So what I need, I want my four M's of every, so four M's before an intubation, I would get my airway equipment, Mabel's, mask, 
airway, bougie, EDT, laryngoscopes, and suction. So I'd organize someone to get that. I'd get my meds for rapid intubation, which is propofol and sucks, maybe opioids, but not absolutely necessary. So that's Mabel's or airway stuff, meds. I'd check my monitoring. My essential would be entitled CO2, SATs, blood pressure, maybe ECG. And finally, I need something to ventilate this patient with. So that might be actually moving the patient to theater for the anesthet- to get the anesthetic machine there or having a you know, Liddell bag ready for that as well. So I may have not been in the position to do this myself. I'll get everything ready. So as soon as the consultant arrives, I can do ISBAR handover and get that stuff ready. Finally, if um, you know the more advanced management, which I wouldn't expect cricket residents know about aspiration, would be the fact that you need to bronch this patient. You need to anticipate and plan that there could be uh, solid things in there that you have the risk of you know uh, volume injury, acid injury, and particulate matter, and you might need to be able to sort that out with with a bronchoscopy. Uh, and then I think about anticipating and planning what the destination is that this patient probably needs. Uh, ICU, HDU, depending on what's happening with the other other um, variables, if the saturations decrease, and you may need to manage that in a HDU setting for a period of 24 hours to get a chest X-ray, rebronch, humidified oxygen, maybe even steroids, and potentially antibiotics later if there's signs of infection. So I think I've covered most of my management plan there. Hmm. Uh, that's yeah, just on the fly. So sorry if I missed no, out anything. <laughs> no, I think I think that was great. I think that's um, you know some of that latter stuff was very very kind of part two-ish, I think, mm. high-level high level stuff. So you, you wouldn't be expected to do that as a quick care resident. I think as a quick care resident, you know, what, what you said was exactly right, like um, up to the point of, um, you know, suctioning the airway, making sure the monitoring's on and you've asked for help. That's probably as much as you'd ever be expected. Even as a as a, as anesthetic registrar, you probably go a little bit more and know a bit more about how to prepare for re-intubation and think more about the logistics of, do you go to theater? Do you go to HDU? What do you do? Get some staff. Um, and then the other stuff, I, um, yeah, I think that thing it's excellent. If you can mention how would you, ma- how you would manage an aspiration, but definitely, I think you'd be, you'd be pushing the, you know, the hundredth percentile of even a yeah, college, right. college interview. Um, really would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, I, I hope I, I hope I mentioned exactly the yeah, point yeah. where to, where to stop at, uh, that you wouldn't be expected to so no one be alarmed that, you know, this is a anesthetist talking about this, not an actual quick care resident, but still a quick care resident could definitely Imagine all the things without the absolute management of an aspiration. Imagine how far you could get with a, mm. with the right framework, attending, monitoring, and ADU assessment, temporization. So you know, calling for help in the phase one type stuff, phase two temporization stuff. That's still basic, and then diagnostics and treatment. You can have a sense of that you need to intubate this patient, and every care resident should know what you need for intubation. I think uh, that, that, you know, that checklist is something, if you've done an anesthetic rotation, you would do every morning before you embark upon your anesthetic. So up, up until, up until that point, I think that's pretty fair game. Hmm. So how do you, how would you fit in kind of the, the higher level? Um, and I guess, I guess a higher level in terms of the, um, the next, the non-clinical stuff. So, you know, this is a clinical situation and you've addressed the clinical hmm. stuff. What about, the other salient factors. So the fact that, mm. um, you know, as a resident, you're the only person in theater, there's an unattended patient with an LMA, which is, you know, definitely not protocol. Mm. Um, and I guess the other escalation stuff of uh, addressing the, um, escalating this to M&Ms, bear bears and things like that. Do you think that's important to include? Yeah, I think mentioning it at the start, like I mentioned, you know, just there's the immediate thing that, 
that mm. really is what I'm going to talk about. But then afterwards, all the system stuff, why did this error happen? So I, I think that's definitely worthwhile mentioning. I, I doubt that you'd, unless they asked you to focus on it, I'd rather, I, d- I doubt that that would happen. But anytime an adverse event of any sort happens, then I, I, I try to make this as my bundle of care really. So, you know, you've got to escalate to your supervisor, director, your in, internal kind of personnel, as well as, you know, the risk man system. Um, which can then be audited by you know various governance bodies, and then finally your own indemnity provider if it, if it was your potential potential incident, as well as the broader anesthetic incident monitoring schemes like WebAirs, and so I think just having those as a quick bundle to state I'd report it to my supervisor, risk man for the for the hospital itself, WebAirs for anesthetics, and personally for my protection, uh, medical indemnity. Um, and potentially you don't, you'd want to audit yourself. Maybe you'd write it up in your logbook as something that happened if this was your thing. Other systems things then are probably not in your scope of practice really. Like, you know, why wasn't there someone there? That's probably something uh, you'd raise and it'd be discussed at a high level. Yeah, so um, just, you know, there's kind of three Ds that you can use to structure this. So um, I love my mnemonics. Nice. <laughs> so, three Ds, so disclose, so open disclosure to the patient. Um, probably less relevant for this, but you know, if there was another adverse event, it's important you have I open completely forgot that. Absolutely. Open disclosure to the patient would be an absolute part of that. Nice. Yeah. Um, so open disclosure, discuss. So I put discuss as in discuss with the consultant and then escalate and then discuss as a department. Um, and then, you know, escalate even further to where best for the ANSCA discussion. Um, and then debrief. So after any clinically adverse event, um, you always have a, you always should and have a debrief. If it's not organized for you, you should seek it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and this happens, you know, all the way through. Like I've, I've, I think every clinically significant adverse event I've had, I've had a debrief with a consultant or a mentor. And I think it's really important you do that. So those three Ds, I think, kind of cover everything on this. I, I like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna adopt that framework. The three Ds. That's part yeah. of me now. So I, yeah. I love this. Uh, you know, has. <laughs> You know, anyone teaches teaches you something, great. Now that I'm going to adopt that because that's really useful. So disclose was the open disclosure, absolutely a part of good practice. Discuss was all the things we already mentioned about reporting locally, you know, clinical governance, risk man, web airs, and your medical indemnity, and then debriefing. So that's for your own and the other staff, especially if there's a critical incident. Excellent. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's probably good coverage of clinical questions. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, again, patient safety, knowing your limits, knowing that you're quite junior um, and, and frameworks and frameworks. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So next one, yes. the lateral thinking question. So these are, I think these have been done in you know corporate settings for a while, but I think there was a, excuse me, there was a period of time where uh, we'd hear about these lateral thinking questions that were appearing in the anesthetic interviews. Now I've got, I've got strong opinions about these, these questions. I think lateral thinking questions are really good, mm-hmm. but I think, any kind of pseudo psychological testing questions, I, I just don't agree with at all. Now, so the difference, uh, the, the difference between these would be something along the lines of, if you were to choose an animal, if you were to become an animal, what animal, animal would you be, and why? And so you might just pick, you know, something like a bird and say, oh, because they have so much fun and they're free and they get to fly and it's enjoyable, uh, or or a dog because they're you know they're they're so loved and they're loyal and things like that. Uh, to then make a, a statement of, of, of judgment of someone's personality based on one question like that, I, I, I have a lot of trouble with, and I, I, I just don't think that's a good way of doing it. I'm no psychologist, but I just can't imagine interviews are problematic enough because it's such a short time frame that people can pretend to be good clinically in an interview. But I think psychological type questions 
uh, or pseudo-psychological questions are just, you know, fraught with danger. Mm. Now, whereas something along the lines of a problem-solving question that's really difficult or potentially really difficult, such as, you know, how many people buy white cars in Australia every year or how many Coke, Coca-Cola cans are drunk in the world every year or how many hairs are on your head? Mm. Now, that's a problem that requires you to think about how you'd answer it. And, you know, I, I remember discussing this with a mate in the corporate world and I, I just started kind of going on about, well, you know, you could, I guess you could you know, take an average of studies and, and look at some research about hair quantity in certain age groups, or maybe you could just measure, count the number of hairs on a square centimeter of someone's head and multiply that out by a rough estimate. And, it, and I, I just briefly started saying my process and he said, yep, great, you passed. Yeah. You know, just to, just to see that you're not overwhelmed by a problem and you have a framework, again, this word framework, a framework or a process to find a solution that isn't that hard. It, it's not hard to you know, come up with that. Hmm. Um, but definitely a lot of people would get stuck on that and think, oh, well, that's, that's crazy. Why would I ever do that? Your yeah. ability to explore the hypothetical, show a process, uh, show a framework, I think, I think is really potentially really useful. Again, I don't have the actual evidence for that. It's probably something I'm going to look up over the next few weeks. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, what, what are your thoughts? I think I, th- I agree. I agree completely. Um, I probably don't have as strong an opinion on the pseudo-psychological questions just because I don't know enough about it. I've always just been on the receiving end of them a lot. Um, I think, I think in, they, in interviews? In interview, uh, less frequently, but more in med school interviews. They were really sexy for a while. Oh, really? I remember, yeah. They just kept asking them. I think there was one uni that there's one uni that uh-huh. almost exclusively asked like that sort of lateral thinking, random sort of psychological questions. They didn't ask any medical questions, like any, why do you want to do medicine questions? Really? I can't remember who it was, but, but if, if, like everyone knew it's just what they did. I, I think it's, I think it's gone out of favor, but. Um, I do remember Monash interviews used to have a detechnicalization question, you know, explain yeah, yeah. the peri- periodic table to a five-year-old or to a 10-year-old or, you know, uh, explain what isomers are. And I remember, we, we, we would practice for these questions because yeah. we heard that that, that was the thing. I, I find that that's a really, that's a really interesting one. Really, really good one. Puts you, puts you on the spot. You got to think on your feet again, who knows what the validity of this is, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I could, I could see the logic in that. I remember doing those too. Um, I think that's much more about, can you break down a concept and explain it? And I think they gave you like five options. So if, if you did have um, quite a few, you didn't know there was bound to be something you would know. Yeah. We, we were allowed to pass on, on one of them. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so look, I, 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 I agree with Lahiru. I think, um, don't, don't try to, if someone asks you what kind of, you know, what kind of animal are you, don't try to think too much about it. Like the way I think about it is what you want to show them is that you don't freak out, that you can stay calm and that you can kind of have a bit of fun is, is what I would take away. Like, can this candidate have a bit of a fun with the interesting, different question or do they freak out and go, oh, you know, I, I am a, I'm a husky because I'm, I'm super loyal to the department and I'm always on time and I'm really good at following instructions and, you know, I'm very smart. You know, that's just a bit intense. And I, and I think you would almost yeah. go, that, that's a bit much. Like, yeah. whereas if you kind of go, I'm this animal because, you know, like I like to eat or I like to hang out with other people and I get lots of enjoyment from exploring. I think, I think it's a way of telling the examiner a bit about you. Mm. Um, and I think, and I think just, just, think genuinely um um and then i guess also try to be a bit unique like like i always want to say a dog because i think i'm intrinsically like a dog but um i think if you want to say something that's a bit different it kind of makes them go oh this person thinks they're a flamingo whatever well well, so would that be what if you had to pick a when you when you had to answer that question what what did you say (laughs) i actually can't remember actually no one of my friends who i interviewed yesterday said uh when i was applying for internship the parent said i was like a wolf 
<laughs> and, I, and I think again, I was trying really hard. I think I, I was talking about like being in a pack or something like that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> as much as I say I, I don't agree with the pseudo pseudo psychological type questions, mm. that's that's my assumption. Maybe maybe it's just an icebreaker question. They just want you to get, put it fun. be put at ease, have a bit of fun. Now, now the thing is, so the the only thing you could do wrong in this situation that's within your control is to stumble on this and not answer it and object to being asked this question. So I completely agree that if you get asked this question, uh, just have a bit of fun with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, say what say what you like about a particular animal and uh, you know see what see what happens. But yeah. if someone doesn't give an answer, that that's that's probably not great. Yeah, exactly. And um, there's another version of this that floated around, which was um, you know you find what do you do if you find a penguin in a freezer. I am. <laughs> um, I think this is one of the quick care questions a few years ago. I heard about um, this, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, th- I think that question again, I, I don't know what they were looking for. Um, but what I what I took away was it again, like that's a really random thing, and most people would go would freeze. Hmm. Well, one of my good friends actually I, ironic that they would freeze, and the penguin was in the freezer. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I would definitely make a pun about that and <laughs> just wait for the laughs and just yeah. sit back and drop my mic. <laughs> Because like, I'm freezing a bit, much like the penguin. <laughs> um, I think one of my friends actually just assumed the penguin was dead. So said that she wouldn't want the penguin to thaw, which I think was a hilarious assumption, which in the interview was just cracked up and said, no, no, the penguin's alive. <laughs> um, I think one of my friends just said, oh, I would just play with the penguin while I wait for RSPCA to come because how often do I get to play with the penguin? Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that's like, that's just a great, that shows your personality. And I think, you know, this, this yeah. friend of mine is like a very fun easygoing guy who would do that i think there's consent issues there why would the penguin want to play with them (laughs) (laughs) but but you're right that's that's not too crazy but that's again a process question yes you value the penguin's safety and Hmm. don't have to come to an endangered species and there's a process you keep was it it's almost like that's your patient they're in a foreign environment patient safety or penguin safety get them to safety call the relevant bodies (laughs) <laughs> and then and then yeah just uh debrief yourself yeah <laughs> with the penguin <laughs> uh, so i think i think those questions are, i think essentially what we're saying is don't overthink it have a bit of fun show your personality be a bit more relaxed um mm-hmm. and i would definitely practice it every now and then because they do come mm-hmm. up and you don't want to be completely caught off guard mm-hmm. now the other questions which are the problem solving ones i i again think this is much more about what do you do when you're faced with a with a with the with a seemingly insurmountable problem to solve, mm. um, and it's just about going back to basics. So, um, a version of this that I've asked recently is: um, How would you determine how many cannulas are used in an operating theater mm. over over the course of a year? Mm. You know, and um, and you, you, usually what you want people to do is: Oh well, there's you know like six theaters at Footscray, um, and in each list in each theater there's two lists per day. Um, and then each, each list, there's between, you know, two to six cases, depending on what specialty. So you average that to three and then you mm-hmm. just multiply that. Mm. Um, and another thing that they'd probably even stop you at that and go, yep, they got the process. Great. Let's move exactly. on. Exactly. And another side of it, which I didn't think of when I asked the question, which someone told me was they're like, well, you know, it depends if you want to estimate, that's what I would do. If I wanted to be a bit more scientific, I would just assess the stock on the 1st of January, assess the stock on the 31st of January, check how much was ordered in between. And I'd make a guess based on that. I'm like, that's great. That, that's really good lateral thinking. Mm. Um, or you could, um, and then one person even like incorporated, well, you know, I would look at which theaters had a resident and then double them on a cannulas for the resident missing the cannula, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. And again, yeah. that just, you have a bit of fun um, yeah. and you make it interesting. So um, I think another question is how many pencils are there in the world? 
um, you know, give 10 users of a pencil. So I think with those questions, just just go back to basics. How would you approach it? And and, and I, I would assume that the intention of this question is when you're when you're faced with a problem in your in the clinical setting or in the non-clinical setting, can you just be reasoned about how you would go to approaching it or would you freak out because it's not something you've prepared for? Yeah. And I, I, I do put a lot of emphasis on that. I think, you know, you'd be surprised if you have fun with this, ask other people these questions just to, you know, if you're about to embark upon, you know, some kind of application process, you're going to get to an interview. You, you almost do want to immerse yourself in this whole process just, just for fun. Next time you're at dinner or at drinks with friends, just, just ask a bunch of these random questions and see what people come up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think once you, once you've done this a bit, then it becomes easier. It becomes more playful potentially we're not saying don't don't make a joke about things but just the fact that you don't have to be daunt this doesn't have to be a daunting process that it can be quite enjoyable i i, I definitely by the uh, by the time i was doing my interviews um after a lot of practice i i, I, I didn't feel as nervous like I, I felt nervous for sure but i, I enjoyed it because I, I felt i was really prepared and i could answer most things with confidence and i had a good cv and a lot of hard work to back this so i felt like i deserved it and i think a lot of that mindset comes in with just pre- preparation and immersing yourself in this process. Yeah, exactly. So look, in an interview is like anything, um, you know, preparation prevents something poor practice. <laughs> and I think, um, I, I think I've, I've said this before, I think, I think this whole idea that you can't and shouldn't prepare for interviews is, is, is really incorrect. And I think it's, um, it puts a lot of people at a false sense of security um, and, and, and I think the key thing is here, you know, everything we've talked about, this isn't about gaming the system. This isn't about lying. This isn't about covering who you are. Mm. It's, it's a skill. It's a skill to stand there and talk about you in a way that's, um, not arrogant. That doesn't sound weird. That doesn't make you uncomfortable. And, and it's something that you will generally have to do for the rest of your life. Um, might as well get good at it. Might as well get used to it. Exactly. And, and, you know, these, the, the people that get into care jobs and anesthetics, I can guarantee there's, there's only a small proportion who don't work really hard for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people are lucky. Some people just happen to have a lot of these skills naturally, um, you know, and, and, and that's great. But I think a lot of people also don't. So, mm-hmm. you know, the key things, like if you are in the process of applying, I know some of the care jobs are already kind of starting to be filled. If you've applied and you're waiting to hear back from an interview, start like now. Don't wait till you get an offer. That's, that's mm-hmm. already too late. Yep. Um, you know, you might be able to get by if you're really lucky and you're naturally a good speaker. But but these jobs, and you know, like we'll probably talk about this next time, but but, mm. but like you know, there's about 200 to 300 people that apply for a handful of positions. Mm. You interview what 20% of them? Yeah, so we had a 150 applicants, interviewed 20. Yeah. It is extremely competitive. And then at, uh, every uh, we'll, we'll talk about this more in the next episode. But essentially, the interview will often be the decider for many departments choosing. Uh, so maybe it's not natural. Maybe you're not extroverted. Maybe your Zoom connection is not working. Maybe you're really bad without the face to face. You know, you don't want to leave these things to chance. Uh, and I, I think these days, what, what what was I saying? So over ten years ago, so thirteen years ago, I would have practiced uh, for that cricket interview for two weeks to a month. Uh, and it's an arms race. So it seems like people practice more and more uh, for, for these things, unfortunately. So, mm. yeah, I think anyone who's just practicing for a week or two, that's probably not enough. Yeah. And, and again, like it, it does make you a better candidate and a better registrar um, overall. Like not, nothing you do is just for the pure sake of getting on. It actually, I think, in a lot of ways, does make you better at your job. 
Um, yeah, so prepare early. Um, please don't wait to get an offer. Um, for most people, that's too late unless you're really lucky. Um, and again, um, you know, I'll ask lots of people to help. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening and watching. So that's the end of this episode. The next episode, I'll share my experiences of being on an interview panel, uh, interview panel, um, especially because it's so different. It's a different ball game now, the fact that we're on Zoom and there's a lot of subtleties with that. Um, and so, yeah, that's what we'll go through the next episode. But uh, something that Kaz wanted to volunteer is if anyone wants to be interviewed in person uh, for their own practice, uh, such that it's on YouTube and on this podcast, please email us at anesthesiapodcast at gmail.com. So that was part five of this series. So we'll go through part six, which will be my experience of being on an interview panel. Um, thanks very much. And we'll catch you next time. See you then.